Hi, I'm Andrew, and welcome to the Review of Two Does Geoengineering podcast, the show where I wander around doing my housework while wasting the time of well-educated and highly paid guests as I misunderstand their research. Today, I'm joined on the show by Levi Edelman. Is that right? Did I pop that up? Levi Edelman. Right? Levi Edelman. Right, okay. Um, and um, uh, we are here today to talk about slippery slopes. And uh, so uh, almost everything in this podcast is predetermined. Um, by the slippery slope I've now stepped on. Uh, I don't need to do any more talking or thinking. I'll just let it happen. Excellent strategy. So uh, I guess I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, this research. Um, so basically we started with a group of researchers focusing on issues of uh, um, social tolerance, uh, starting with the assumption that uh, it's really hard to get everyone to like each other. Uh, there's too many different types of people with different types of views and a lot of them are going to conflict with each other. Um, and I can certainly uh, add, uh, evidence that myself. I managed to <laughs> upset almost everybody I speak to. Yes, uh, most, most people we're going to talk to are going to be at least somewhat awful, at least on one of the dimensions we consider important in our lives. Is, I'm really interested in that. Is there like a, an official psychological measure of awfulness that you use in the study? Uh, I'd, no. like to, I'd like to see where I am, more importantly, most people I've met come on that scale. Well, I have tried to publish research on this, but reviewer two, along with reviewers one and three, uh, often take offense and uh, decided to move on to, to less, less problematic pastors. Um, but at the core of it is the fact that we're going to disagree on so many different things. And in a complicated world, we're going to have different values, uh, different beliefs, and it's really hard to find people where we connect on all of them. And so social tolerance says, okay, uh, we've got to be able to say, I think you're wrong. I think you might be morally wrong, but I also think that there's good reasons why I should just let you continue to be wrong because that's necessary for a complex and diverse society. Well, and I mean, that's, that's what I personally love to just correct everybody who I think is wrong. <laughs> Probably that's what, one of the main reasons that people think I'm, as you put it, awful. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, and uh, so from this, we got this kind of question of, uh, this helps lead towards the question of slippery slope because part of tolerance is the question of being intolerant, that we're also gonna encounter some things where we think they're wrong, but we think they're so wrong that we cannot permit it to happen. And we can think of like tons of, you know, really good examples of how this might happen. You know, um, um, female genital mutilation is a, you know, a common example people bring up of something they think is really wrong, but it can also depend on your own values. Some people, you know, really care about animal rights and they might say well uh, you know animal slaughter ritual slaughter is just too unacceptable and it's violation of, i think you know animals well-being and rights um, and therefore I'm, i cannot tolerate it. it's intolerable to me um but then the question comes well how do we decide what's intolerable um and part of it we think might come down to what we think the risks are and this is where slippery slope comes into the equation um you know if, if i think that you know you're you know you're you're let's say refusing to take uh, the polio vaccine. And I feel like, well, you know what, it's fine. If you know, four people in the country don't take polio vaccine, we're gonna be fine. Um, I'm less likely to feel the need to interfere, to try to use force to change your mind, or to change your behavior. Um, but if it's 10,000 people or 10 million people, uh, which I think is 90% of the population of, of the UK, um, at that number, all of a sudden- the problem 10 million people? 10 million people is not 90% of the population of the UK. <laughs> The, the good population, the non-awful population. Okay, the non-awful population, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you quite get to 10 million of them. Um, 
But when we when the numbers get that high, all of a sudden the risks of this behavior uh, are greatly increased. Uh, and, and it's here that we really start to get into the question of slippery slope thinking. Because some people might say, well, what if we let one person do it? Will that lead to five people doing it? Will it lead inevitably to 10, to 15, to 10,000? I have to stop it at one. Or, that, I mean, that's one interpretation of slippery slope. I mean, how it's applied to geoengineering is normally that, you know, the concept that, you know, an, an early action in an undeveloped form leads to a more complex and more um, advanced action. So um, it's not a case of the, the slippery slope is not normally applied in geoengineering to uh, the, uh, I can't remember the, the philosopher that comes up with it, but the idea, what if my work, what if my deeds become universal law, uh, the principle of universal law in philosophy, but basically if I, if, I, if I behave in this way and then other people copy me. So for example, if I, if I throw litter, it doesn't matter because it's, I don't produce that much litter. So, you know, who cares? But if everyone throws litter, then that's pretty bad because we'd all end up drowning in litter, right? So um, the, the idea being that it, it's not so much a control on an individual's behavior, um, that's the slippery slope, um issue it's the it's the idea of um uh, a set of actions uh leading to a um uh sort of what you might call socio-technical locking so for example we we drive because everyone drives and everyone drives because everyone else drives so you know the the, the buses of there, there there aren't good bus routes there aren't good cycle lanes and, and people just get into this sort of slippery slope of driving you get this kind of uh, as, as, as you start to cater more and more for car drivers, it becomes less and less practical and yeah. to, to, to get around any other way, right? So are there two slippery slopes or just, well, there's or just one? Are there two, two concepts of slippery slope? Or, um, I mean, it's quite possible that we just invited you on completely the wrong podcast <laughs> and you don't know anything about the subject that we're trying to get you to talk about. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering where there is an overlap between these two concepts, if any. I'm, I'm here to inform the masses, uh, regardless of what they intended to hear. Uh, the beauty of my wisdom is that everyone needs it, and I just need to bring it to them. No, but there's many. Well, that's, that's the approach I've taken in life too. It's got me punched a few times. I'm not sure it's helped me, but you know, it's been good fun sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's slippery slopes come in different forms. So, like even in the 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 other form, which is part of the same kind of line of the research, that one action will lead to you know horrific consequences. So, for example, it'll be like you know. Um, um, you know, we can we should be multicultural and accept different values, but that may lead uh, inescapably towards the the demolition of the underlying core values of the culture until until yeah, that's a that's a popper's popper's right. paradox, right? So, comes, so you know, can you yeah. can you tolerate the uh, can you tolerate the intolerable? Should into, should, intoler should tolerance be extended to the intolerant, right? Yeah, which is you know, and these you know, there's so many underlying difficult kind of questions here, and a lot of the judgments will depend on your particular judgment uh, of, of how likely. Because essentially, um, a slippery slope is a statement of of intensity and likelihood of saying that uh, um, there's going to be some intensely negative outcome usually from this this initial thing that down the slope. Yeah, all slippery slopes are apparently bad. There's no like, so you don't get slippery slopes to good things. You only get slippery slopes to bad things. It's a bit confusing, really, because you think like if slopes are slippery, then they'd be as likely to lead to good things as bad things. But um, as, as a child, as a child who made lots of terrible decisions at the top of hills, I can I can confirm that you very rarely end up sliding down any kind of slope and ending up somewhere better or in a better state than you began. Um, <laughs> but but this is this is indeed like a you know that it is interesting to talk about only in this kind of negative way. 
Um, but in a positive way, we often think about these interventions. If you look at like the, the way that people talk about social behavioral interventions, um, that's their good slippery slopes. The idea being, well, if I can, you know, convince people to wear these hats twice a week, it's going to lead them to vote in, in favor of the party I think they really ought to be voting for. Um, you're trying to create the slippery slope. Yeah, so like so a social contagion, you're, you're sort of talking about a social contagion. So, for example, if, um, you know, if I don't drink drive and I make a big scene about not drink driving and, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a good virtue signaling person because I don't drink drive, then other people will think, hey, he's sort of seen as being a moral and good person because he takes an active stand against drink driving and therefore you think that behaviour will spread and that to a large extent. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember when I last got breathalyzed, I think probably you know, 20, 20 years ago or something like that, maybe a bit longer. Um, and I haven't had a breath test since, but, you know, I, I, I don't drink drive and you know, I, I wouldn't, um, but it's, it's not in practical terms that the, the, the risk of arrest that prevents me, it's more the kind of the sort of social prohibition that, that, that makes it unacceptable is if people routinely drink drunk drank and drove like they speed which is you know equally dangerous quite frankly if you're going to speed all the time versus drink driving once a week you're probably you know e equally at risk yeah please don't write in we don't need the details on that um and um but but the principle still applies you know there's a there's a trade-off in these things and it, and and um but but it's the you, you, speeding is only mildly socially condemned, whereas drink driving is very heavily socially condemned, and that and that provides an effective behavioural control. So, you know those kind of um, uh, you know uh, pro-social social contagion issues um, can be socially beneficial. Yeah, yeah, um, and and you know so there's you know these kind of there's a lot of things in in society, like you said, right, that we have this kind of cause-effect kind of system, and you know the slippery slope ones. Um, yeah, they come in many different forms. If you look at the kind of literature, uh, there's you know, the ones that are considered more like logical, um, that, you know, uh, where, you know, if, if you say that um, uh, a baby is, or like a, a fetus is not alive at, you know, one month, what makes it more alive at two months or three months? Um, and you basically, you end up with, there's not any clear lines you can draw to come to the conclusion you want to reach. Um, and that's one sort of slippery slope. But then there's the more the social psychological kind, where as soon as people start getting into this pattern of behavior, it's going to lead to this pattern, this pattern into, you know, this horrible uh, end out. Yeah, the kind of, I mean, the, 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 that, that's commonly applied to drug abuse, you know, the kind of yeah. gateway drug theory that, you know, you start with a spliff and you end up being smackhead and it was, you know, it's all inevitably inevitable. Yeah. And, you know, Story that's where you get kind of ridic ridiculous sort of like social conservative um, behavioral control campaigns are their just say no's and their purity rings and all the other nonsense. They make, they make liberals laugh because they're just so stupid, right? But, um, you know, liberals have got their own stupidity. We, we're equal opportunities bastards on the show. <laughs> don't, don't worry about that. What, um, what me? We have to take the piss out of the commies as well as the, oh, as the social conservatives. So, um, the, but let, sorry, I, I just want to get one thing out of the way because I normally we introduce it by the show by talking giving you an um people an introduction to your uh pay, paper and your institution but because we're lazy and disorganized basically quite unprofessional i failed to do that this time so if you could tell us what university you're at and you know what your spec what your specialism is and um the title of the paper that you're working on that'd be great yeah so um i'm i mean I said, you know, my name is Leif Edelman. So initially I was, uh, for the past four years, I was working at Utrecht University um, as, a, uh, as a social researcher. 
Um, Utrecht, which is like kind of Amsterdam, but not as yeah. full of neon lights and just um, less fewer neon lights. Uh, you actually have to go into the actual seedy districts uh, to get to get. Yeah, there, 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 there's there's not an, a, a, as so much an obvious abundance of prostitution in Utrecht as there is in in Amsterdam. It's like mm -hmm. kind of what Amsterdam got was like before it got a bit seedy and horrible, right? Uh, so, um, <laughs> but um, I mean, I've been, I've been to the United States now. I'm in the United States now, and I, I spent some time in London this past year. And uh, the country's too pretty to be seedy. It's just after you see the rest of the world, you're like, you know what? I, I take those <laughs> the seediness of those places over many. Yeah, other I quite. I mean, I don't, I'm quite a fan of Holland. But the it's, only uh, thing that annoys me about it's incredible uh, soul destroying flatness. Um, I, I quite like a bit of terrain, and um, although uh, the, the Dutch are lovely people, and it's a very well organized country, <laughs> they're very much in 19 hills. They're very much a 1980s country back when everything was like one dimensional, the, the games and everything. Your, your, your character would just moved. <laughs> yeah, across the yeah it's like playing Atari Battle Zone so, <laughs> from 1978. Yeah, for the whole yeah. country for your entire life. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, there's, a there's a joke for the Gen Xs, isn't there? <laughs> None of the millennials and Gen Zs listening to this are going to understand the Battle Zone reference no. that I just made. Um, but, yeah, so you you were at University of Utrecht. I think that's where you were when you published this paper. Yeah, when I published paper. That's correct. And and now, yeah. and I'm, what, what's the title of the paper? The title paper is um, on a slippery slope to intolerance. Uh, individual difference in slippery slope beliefs predict outgroup negativity. Uh, and I did this paper with my colleagues um, Michael Verkaute, uh, Diana Cardenas, and Kumar Yogeshwaran. Um, Diana from uh, um, ANU in Australia, and Kumar Yogeshwaran from uh, University Christchurch in New Zealand, uh, University of uh, Canterbury. Um, and um, right now I'm, I'm transitioning into a, uh, a position at the United States uh, Agency for International Development. So I'll be able to take some of my- uh, like US, And USAID, force some of right? those, USAID, yeah. Yeah, you're sort of the, the people who drop grain out of aircraft and stuff like well, that, right? The way, the way I like to think about it is that um, uh, we, we often talk about um, terraforming Mars as a solution for what we've done to the earth. You're like, well, you know, we've clearly, you know, ruined this one way too much. Let's go terraform Mars and see if we can do better on, on Earth 2.0. We've got an episode on that for people who are interested <laughs> in our back catalogue. Ollie Morton, and, uh, he was pretty good. I quite like Ollie Morton. He's got a lot of interesting things to say. We're a continuation of that, although we, we haven't given up quite as much. We just say, we you know, we've, we've maybe messed up the United States a bit too much. Let's go see if we could uh, terraform other countries and make them more. Uh, how's that working out for you right now? For when we have to uh, move there. How's that working out, the whole kind of American soft imperial power? Is that going well this week, this month? Uh, uh, well, well, we don't know. Our, our, there's a, a misquote, I think, attributed to uh, a Chinese foreign minister who was asked uh, if the French Revolution had been a success. Uh, and the answer was, um, it's too early to tell. Yeah, and that was about 200 years after the event. But it wasn't, yeah, that was a, I think it was a mistranslation of either the question yeah. or the answer. But everyone, it's one of these apocryphal things that everyone, everyone likes the answer because it addresses some kind of deeper truth, even though it wasn't actually true. It's like Marie Antoinette never said, um, uh, let them eat cake. Um, but because we want it to be true, then um, we, uh, we report the, the, the lie um, rather than the truth. And uh, Jesse Reynolds has got a lot to say about this, actually. I, he's, I think he's doing some, um, or he certainly brings up a lot. I don't know what he's doing, research he's doing on it, but I think he brings up a lot the, the fact that people like to quote um, uh, fake facts that support the narrative that they want to tell, particularly about geoengineering, but I think it applies to you know, pretty much everything. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, it's interesting on two dimensions. The first one is, you know, well, even if Marianne didn't say it, uh, once her head's off, she may as well have said it. 
Um, and and secondly, it's uh, you know who, can't libel the dead. Exactly. Who has a bigger impact on the world, me or Santa Claus? Santa Claus. You don't need to exist to have a major impact. So you know some of these some of these uh, myths will long outlive us and have a great. Uh, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a very good way of, of thinking about um, my contribution to the other uh, <laughs> or otherwise to society. I never I've never compared myself to one unfavorably to Santa Claus, but but now um, now you put it uh, that way. Um, I would like to go and so I, I think Santa Claus would get cancelled in, in in the modern world. I think if he went around doling out uh, presents to children that weren't blood relatives or people that he was uh, uh, criminal background checked and uh, entrusted into care of, then he might get in some trouble. But anyway, we di we digress. So anyway, <laughs> the paper that you you come up with, um, your your sort of um, uh, sort of thesis is, is is that people who believe in the slippery slope of sort of sanctimonious conformist assholes. Is this a, um, is this a, uh, a, a politically um, distributed phenomenon or, or, or is it, you know, just simply woke scolds from the left? I mean, do, do we have the same kind of um, uh, snotty condemnation from both left and right or, or, or is it concentrated in, uh, in, in the left. I mean, I've seen it a lot on the left, but I, I, you know, I don't know whether the phenomenon, phenomenon is common on the left and the right. Yes, I mean, I'd, I'd love to give um, uh, broad statements, but I'll qualify just a little bit to ensure that my uh, collaborators will collaborate with me again in the future. Um, uh, but essentially looking at, you know, is there a, a, an underlying personality element that people are going to say, you know, that, they, they, that slippery slopes are likely to happen, that small things will lead to big, horrible consequences? that things will slide down this direction. Um, and you know, that itself, it isn't in itself a fallacy because it, it can happen, right? This has been, a, I think, a, a really interesting and a typical conversation. Well, isn't the slippery slope fallacy is not, it's not, it's not called a fallacy because slippery slopes are impossible, but they're not deterministic in the way that they're described as being, right? So, you know, to, to, to take a, a position which is only ever sort of advocated in sort of humorously, you get the kind of extreme sort of apostrophe protection society. Um, so in the, I don't know whether you have this in, a, in the US, but we have this thing called a, uh, uh, a, either a butcher's or a greengrocer's apostrophe where they, you know, when they, they <laughs> take a plural and then put a, an apostrophe with a plural, right? And there was this guy on the radio from the Apostrophe Protection Society on the news that they disbanded. They decided that uh, civilization has gone to hell in a handcart because people <laughs> won't use um, the uh, apostrophe correctly. And he was, he was saying that uh, uh, the, 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 the incorrect use of apostrophes for plurals um, uh, were, you know, was a, a one step on a slippery slope to rioting the street in the end of uh, uh, human civilization. And obviously he was being tongue in cheek at that point, but, but it's a good way of, of kind of lampooning the slippery slope fallacy yeah. while also uh, being a, an absolute grammar Nazi. And, and that's, um, uh, you know, uh, two subjects both close to my heart, both the slippery slope fallacy <laughs> and picking on people for the petty faults in their use of language, despite the fact that it doesn't impede understanding one little bit. So and here's, the, um, and here's the fun fact is that, uh, you know, that um, maybe he's right, you know, uh, you know, we, we are closer to rise in the street. Now, you know. Right, you know, and, and then uh, uh, our tongues will be, I don't know, it's going to be out probably, but um, for having misused. Before I get too far into the, the, the consequences of your research, I do want to drill into that particular left-right thing. That's kind of interesting. But let, let me just return to, the, to a point which we raised earlier, but you didn't fully answer. I, I really think it's important to get this nailed down. So in, in, in the geoengineering discourse, so, you know, just for, 
if you're not quite up to speed with geoengineering, because I, I don't expect you to be, because it's not your, your field, but this is the idea of squirting various kind of shiny stuff into the upper atmosphere so yeah. that it reflects the sunshine, right? Now, there are people who make the argument that any kind of outdoor research on this inevitably leads to deployment because, you know, once you permit that this, this abhorrence um, that, you know, you've broken that kind of taboo, uh, suddenly it all seems... Um, perfectly reasonable like you know uh, once you've had the first drag on your first spliff then um you immediately progress um to injecting uh hard drugs uh do not pass go do not collect 200 pounds um now that that to me seems pretty ridiculous but you were talking about a different form of ridiculousness that you kind of have this like social contagion this the the, the principle of universal law so when it comes to these sanctimonious assholes who believe in this slippery slope fallacy and um, rub it in everyone's noses as they boss them around and interfere with their daily lives, um, which which of those two um, types of slippery slope um, uh, are, are, are you talking about in this research? Is it is it the kind of social contagion thing only, or are you also talking about this sort of social technical lock-in type of slippery slope? Because I'm not quite clear yeah. on whether these are two fundamentally different effects, and I can't apply your research to the geoengineering case, and I've basically just wasted your time and everybody else's by getting you on the show. Well, so I think what we'll do here is we'll do a um, uh, we'll we'll do a fork in the road. And we'll leave the listeners guessing uh, which of the two forks they're actually hearing. Where one I'll say yes, and one I'll say no. Um, for this one, kind of like choose your own adventure game for another <laughs> exactly. reference, right? Okay, yeah. excellent. So they, We're all about the old fast today. So they can all think that we've had a two-hour conversation, uh, and they're missing out on, on a lot of it. Um, but essentially, we're looking at it as a, in, in the broadest sense that, you know, something that slippery slopes can come in all these different forms. There's this kind of technological side, this kind of uh, social contagion side, this kind of almost just simply psychological side that once we come to a certain conclusion or even just the straight up logical side that if I, you know, accept a certain premise, I then don't have the logical grounds under which to reject the next premise. But, um, you, think that, but you think the way that you're researching, you know, the type of behavior you're thinking of this kind of like social intolerance a social conformity focused thinking right you're you're viewing that as being something which applies broadly speaking to a greater or less extent to to slippery slopes of various different flavors and kinds is that so it I, doesn't really matter would, whether it's a chocolate chocolate slippery slope <laughs> or a raspberry ripple strip slippery slope it's all slippery slopes and if you're a confrontational sanctimonious asshole then you're going to be um offended by them in whatever form they come is that right uh, that's what I like to say, and, but obviously I do understand that a reviewer too, faster that he is, is likely to try to call me out on it and say that it doesn't apply generally. But you know, um, there's always there has to be wrong people. Well, I think advice. to be fair, I think it's important you recognise here that this does conform pretty well to um, uh, reviewer two's uh, private. <laughs> so you're going to get a fairly easy ride of this. <laughs> yeah, I think that will And just to quickly jump back to one of the questions you asked before that I, I didn't uh, respond to. We actually find just the way we measure it, at least, um, and, and on the topics we measure it on, um, we find this, these tend to be more of more effects or there's more slippery slope thinking uh, in the right wing than in the left wing. Well, that's really um, surprising. So give me, give me examples, because, I mean, the slippery slope, certainly within our discipline, this slippery slope fallacy tends to come from the hard left. The, you yeah. know, the idea that these people tend to be, you know, more of the kind of deep green um, anti-capitalist thinking, you know, they, 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 they object to the, they view car carbon 
um, the carbon problem and, uh, as being fundamentally a feature of uh, a rapacious capitalist conception of the economy. It's fundamentally exploitative, it's fundamentally imperial, um, and geoengineering is a facet of, of that which is designed to delay the inevitable end of the, uh, this capitalist hegemony and the rise of the um, inevitable socialist rev re revolution that will yeah. follow, bringing us all to the utopia that definitely won't involve um, repression and mass starvation like it does every other time that everyone has ever tried it. But um, that you're saying now that it's actually the political right who are, who are vulnerable to this way of thinking. So give, give me examples of where the political right also behave in this way and what, what the kind of fallacies mm -hmm. that they have. I mean, you, we, we've mentioned the, the kind of war on drugs type stuff, um, which is, you know, an, in, an interesting comparator. But what what other examples do you have of um, this slippery slope thinking from the political right? So I mean, there's a, you know uh, one of the interesting fears. I think that it's it's I read this article from the New York Times. I think I cannot remember enough about it. Basically, making the argument that um, these kind of conspiracy theory kind of thinking tends to pop up among the least powerful, among the less powerful. That is, as soon as the the political map shifts, the conspiracy theories pop up on the other side. That when they are in power, had no need for them. Uh, yeah, I, I, it just, just as, as, a, as a query slash challenge to that, my understanding of it is similar but slightly different. The conspiracy theories tend to take root among people who are losing power. So people who used to have status and are observing their loss of status. So this is really interesting as an outsider view of America, right? So yeah. you, you're seeing a transition. So people who in the you know, um, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s would have been employed in um, relatively um, affluent, aspirational blue collar manufacturing jobs. So you know, people like municipal workers and um, auto production, they were quite aspirational jobs. You could raise, a, you know, you have a good family standard of living, single income household, um, raise a family. You know, that was the American dream, right? You go and work, for example, for you know, Ford in Detroit or whatever, and you bring enough money home to um, to raise your children and keep your wife at home. And, and that was the American dream. And as you've got the deindustrialization of the American economy, the rise of the Rust Belt, um, the offshoring and manufacturing and some and, and many sort of equivalent customer service jobs and white collar jobs to emerging economies like India and uh, the Eastern Chinese seaboard, um, you, you, you've got... Um, uh, a loss of status and power, and that's concentrated in um, uh, in the older and whiter demographic in America, and that's where you have this kind of febrile, nonsensical, anti-science Trump-type thinking take root. So this is why people are, uh, are refusing vaccines, but yet willingly going out and buying horse deworming tablets in an attempt to save them from COVID. So it's this kind of loss of status, loss of position in society that drives this um, uh, this conspiratorial thinking. So are you drawing a parallel there between um, between conspiracy theories and slippery slope thinking? Is that, do you view them as being aspects of the same psychosocial phenomenon? I don't know if they're, I would say they're that, I think they're, they're related as, as a lot of things are. How related? I mean, like, you know, if you look back at the history I was reading about, you know, like the... Um, uh, in the early days, when when Ford was publishing um, his his uh, the the International Jew, the anti-Semitic variation on the the protocol of other design, 
he was believed and and he was listened to by a lot of the rural people who saw him so, as so a which, hero. which so when you just talk about ford which ford are we talking about the, the henry, ford. henry ford the founder of the the, the car manufacturer the car manufacturers was he, he like i didn't know that was he like a kind of noted um anti-semitic yes i didn't, I didn't know anything about it. he probably like yeah, i'm betraying my paper there i'm and well, no, it's, I mean, this is again American history. It didn't, uh, um, uh, this, this well, is actually, I mean, this is this is new. I mean, we do like a good diversion here, directly uh, on this show. We came to talk about geoengineering, but let's go into the history let's of anti <laughs> So, what, um, what, uh, did Henry Ford have to say about the Jews? So, so as I, my understanding is, and I, I think all I've done is read one article on the Wikipedia page, which makes me, I think, sufficient. You're an expert by us, exactly. I can show you that. So uh, basically, I think he, he was very anti-war in World War I, um, and he, he actually organized a ship to sail across the ocean, to, stopping in Oslo, I believe, to make an anti-war pitch. And apparently it was a little bit of a, a disaster, like he got there and then gave a speech about his latest vehicles and not so much about peace. But apparently somewhere along the way, um, someone got to him that uh, uh, Jewish bankers were responsible for the war. And that idea just festered in his mind. And and. Uh, he then spent the next few years like gathering a group of people around him who would seek more information about it. And then they got their hands on the Protocols Elders of Zion, which is a, a forgery of a forgery of a forgery of a, of a, a plagiarism, I think. What, what, was the, what was it? Sorry, what was the, the, the noun that you were referring to there? Uh, the Protocols? Of the, so the, yeah, protocols the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a, a forged document build on on like a plagiarized document originally it was like i think it was a, a french or okay so novel. basically he, he got this fake thingy that said the jews are in control of the world and, and decided yeah. that that was the truth right okay. and then he started he started publishing it and started doing research on prominent american jews to sort of try to show that they were doing that and his newspaper was basically given out at like every uh, four dealership was, was sort of mandated to give them away with their cars or to sell that's them a bit of, that's a bit of forced history that they're probably quite keen that's, uh, people don't hear about uh, his, so, yeah. Well, yeah i've never heard about that and i've been aware of the ford yeah. brand since i was knee high to a grasshopper so his uh his son and i mean later like uh, approaching world war ii he pulled back on that i think a little bit and, and stepped away from it um and his son and grandson put a lot of effort into uh, uh cleaning up the name and trying to you know uh reform healthy connections with the jewish or other minority communities in the u.s um and to try to push away that part of the history of, of the founder, um, but uh, the we digress as we as we like to say. Apparently, um, uh, the the core that was that that he was seen as a speaking for the rural American, and so this this divide between the rural and the urban America has been you know in the making for hundreds for hundred years, um, and and we still see part of it of you know who which people believe what, and then you know the conspiracy theories like yeah, I mean it's certainly a big uh, there's certainly a big divide in American voting intention. Um, you know, I know that Ken Caldera is. Um, shared quite a lot of information about this um uh you know one of the best predictors of the um of voting intention in america uh is the population density um of the area in which you reside right so if people live you know over a certain number of dwellings per hectare or population per hectare i can't exactly remember how it's split up but they're much more you know enormously more likely to vote democrat than they are um, Republican, and the, uh, the but, but that but th this is sort of seemingly more predictive than most other um, ways of describing Indeed, yeah. what, you know how people might vote. You know, it's more predictive than say ethnicity and you know other other details like that. So 
Um, I, I can't remember. I'm not prepared for this bit, but <laughs> so I, I don't don't. If I get it wrong, I don't apologise at all. I don't care. Um, but um, uh, but it's certainly you know it is a predictive um, yeah. uh, feature, uh, and I, it, it, it. But I think that it's it's interesting that the 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 conspiratorial. I, I don't know whether whether people on the political right have been more affected by the kind of deindustrialization and the loss of um, uh, affluent middle-income jobs. So you, uh, the ele- I don't know, you, uh, listeners probably haven't heard of the, or may not have heard of the elephant graph, but the idea being that the um, uh, there's been a huge sort of growth in the, um, uh, the, the incomes of the uh, super rich and yeah. um, a comparative loss of the um, uh, of the incomes of the um, uh, of the middle classes in the deve- in the developed world um, at the expense of a, a much larger um, middle class in the relatively poorer yeah. developing world, right? So that you know that 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 kind of uh, wage loss, the loss of status, underpins a lot of people's um, resentment yeah. and conspiratorial thinking, but. To what extent is that really a a right wing thing? I mean, I know that a lot of the disaffected uh, voters in the Rust Belt were, you know, voting for Trump and Hillary lost those kind of um, four or five key states, didn't she? But um, uh, in the Rust Belt, where she sort of perhaps didn't put in as much campaigning effort as she might might have done. But you know, were, were they really? You know, is it is it really the the rural right wing that's lost out um, in this elephant curve deindustrialization? Um, and, and hollowing out of the middle class in America, or, or, or is is that not the case? It's definitely the, the it's definitely a group that feels like they've lost out. Right, this whole debate's about you know who's actually lost out more. But at the end of the day, it's about like the perception, which I think is why your your point about like uh, loss of power is most important. It's about feeling that you ought to have that power and that you no yeah. longer have it. That makes you you know that drives you towards often you know trying ways of trying to understand the world that that don't challenge your worldview as much. So after Trump won the election, there was a lot of a push to say um, you know, it, was, it was hacked by Russia or hacked by, by other people, that these, the results weren't, you couldn't trust them, something, was, something must be wrong for the results to turn out this way, um, rather than saying maybe not enough of the country is persuaded by the way I see it. Um, and, and that's, I think- I think those two beliefs can coexist. I don't think there's much doubt that the US, that the American, uh, sorry, the Russians tried to interfere in the US presidential election, nor that, um, uh, that there's quite a long-standing animosity between Vladimir Putin and Hillary Clinton, but whether that was a, a clinch in an election where, you know, obviously there was a, a big disconnect between the um, uh, coastal elites and, the, you know, a large number of voters in the areas yeah. where, you know, they were trying to serve um, people but had perhaps forgotten their, um, uh, the, you know, the roots that they, they'd come to over-rely on the, the, the late you know, Labour voters, right? And, right, and that's not when, something... When when Labour lost its blue wall, right? The, it lost... Yeah, exactly. It. I was going to draw the same... Exactly. You know, literally just going to come segue into to the same subject that, you you know, we're seeing a transition globally where the what used to be the parties of the working class and now they've um, the, the become the parties of the um, the educated urban elite. So not necessarily the after urban elites, but the educated urban elite. So people who are... Um, people who are urban dwellers and are um, college educated are vastly, vastly more likely to, to vote for the Democrats in America and, and, and to a similar but not quite as extreme extent, because you don't do anything quite as extreme um, around here as <laughs> you guys do it. Um, they are also less likely to vote for 
um, uh, Boris Johnson and his bunch of corrupt, uh, self-serving, cronious bastards. Not wishing to give away my own voting intention. Um, You're clearly uh, Lib Dem. No. I understand. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I was a bit lost at the last <laughs> election. I'm, I'm no Marxist by any means and constantly take the mick out of commies on this show. Um, but, you know, I did end up voting for Jeremy Corbyn, um, mainly because of the, you know, hatred of the alternative. In fact, entirely down to hatred of the alternative. Um, no fan of Corbyn whatsoever. But, you know, in the choice between the, the corruption and self-serving lies of Boris Johnson, um, for whom the... Uh, country's political system is now an extension of his mating strategy um uh and versus jeremy corbyn who at least had some degree of principles and statesmanship um and i, I chose the latter but anyway we are somewhat yeah. disappearing so, of but this does tangents. get but this does get us down to that i think this can bring us i think a little back so the question that that sort of led us down is you know like the question of um uh is this really a right or left thing and i think what we could probably say is it's it's uh it's about this power thing and it's about this loss of power so in the uh, we talk about the you know, the climate change, the power is still pretty firmly in the hands of what we see as the right in the sense of like the oil, the the, the industrial side, the capitalistic side, um, and so it might make sense that on the left there you've got people uh, that these these uh, slippery slope beliefs might be more likely to promulgate because they're the ones pushing back at this this power that they want to shake and want to shake completely. Whereas, so in, in the, the... How might that manifest in terms of the slippery slope? You know, if I was a, a right-wing slippery sloper, then how would I see the rise of, um, uh, you know, renewable energy or, or whatever? You know, would I, would I see it as being a kind of a sub subsidy um, uh, mainlining corporate boondoggles or what? Well, you know, what, yeah, what I mean, would be my... It could be that, but it also could be, you know, like depending on, on how much, how, pro, how prone you are to slippery slope beliefs, you could see this as the, the beginning of the end that, you know, as soon as they we start, you know, funding uh, solar energy projects, they're going to start shutting down this and they'll take away your cars and they'll tell you you can't run your refrigerator um, and just moving in the direction. You know, yeah, I think that's interesting because what I mean, what you're saying there is this. I've actually heard some this kind of narrative come across from people who have quite sort of previously respected or at least tolerated their viewpoints. But you see this, I see this not in terms of climate change, but I see this very, very much in terms of um, uh, thinking on um, COVID, that, that the idea being that, you know, wearing a mask is not just a, a way of you not sneezing your germs off people that you happen to be sitting next to on the bus, which is how I see it. It's just a matter of basic physics, right? If you sneeze and you're wearing a mask, you're going to spray far less of your um, unpleasant uh, nasties that you're carrying around with you than, than you would without one. They, they state, the, the people who speak against this say, you know, what, what, what we're seeing here is a step towards the, you know, it's a step towards totalitarianism. You, yeah. You've got an, an ever-expanding state that wants to maximise its control over the population, that there's no particular scientific backing for this rather than any other policy. But what it does is it gives people... Uh, a way to enforce acquiescence and control over the populace. And they're drawing attention to things like, you know, the fact that the Australian police have used tear gas and water cannon and stuff like that for the first time. You know, they're very focused on the idea of the, you know, the, 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 the you know, an antipathy to, towards big government. And you're, you're saying that this sort of slippery slope belief is, is you know, I, I think it quite obviously is manifested in that way of thinking, right? So you, <laughs> but you're, yeah. but you're drawing attention to the, the slippery slopeness of it being focused around um, uh, the expansion of 
the state towards a, a highly interventionist state um, uh, modus operandi, you know, veering towards totalitarian control, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, we, we shouldn't underestimate that, you know, the fact that a lot of these times, you know, the, your likelihood to believe in these things is going to be connected to how it aligns to your political viewpoints. If you already are, are you know, believe in, in you worry about big government on any level, um, uh, you're probably more likely to then see, oh, well, this is it beginning. This is, you know, uh, this exactly. mask mandate is, is, you know, the first step to, to Nazism and it's just a matter of time or, you know, uh, any any gun rights law uh, is the beginning of them taking away people's guns, going door to door. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that. I mean, the, 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 I've seen sort of memes going around on Twitter of, um, you know, uh, with the vaccine passports, with like a kind of Nazi commandant going around going, papers, please, um, you know, drawing a very, 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 very um, open parallel between yeah. the, um, the, the COVID restrictions and the culture which led to the atrocities of the Nazi, Nazi era. And I, I, I'm not saying whether that slippery slope exists or doesn't exist. I, you know, I, I find it fascinating, but don't feel I have anything useful to say on, on whether or not, um, you know, slippery slopes, um, you know, or what slippery slopes exist that would, that would lead to um, the rise of, of, of a genocidal totalitarian regime. I mean, you, you've obviously got some, uh, you've raised some, Prince uh, comments about an, an anti-Semitism earlier. Um, I, I'd be really interested to sort of take, to hear your view on this because you know you, you obviously study slippery slopes and the psychology behind them, but there is some validity. There, there is something. Um, there are some features of societies. I mean, you can pick 1930s Germany as an example. It's not the only one you might choose to discuss, but it's a, you know it's, it's a good and an obviously oft discussed example. What which bits? Of those, which slopes were slippery in that period? What you know, what what features of that society and thing and that style of thinking led to the kind of totalitarian um, approach, which you um, which, which you rightly identify these anti-mask, anti-vaxxers as, as as seeing as being features of this kind of interventionist big government approach? What 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 do you see yeah. as being the genuinely slippery slopes? I actually, I don't, I have no idea. So, you know, I'm not an expert in these at all, but I think, you know, so often it's, it's it turns on very complex, you know, match of things. Would, would Nazi Germany have happened without the Weimar Republic, which would that have happened if not for the particular way World War I happened to end? And um, would it have happened, like the amount of things that had to go wrong or right, depending on your perspective, I suppose, um, for it to end up that way are, are really complex. And the way I see, the way I yeah. see it is that, you know, the, Whenever we hear slippery slope arguments, they're they're not about something that complex. They're about one feature and go well. You know, the the Germans took away people's guns. That led to to Nazi Germany. Any approach of taking away people's guns is therefore an approach to Nazi Germany. It's like well, no. Sometimes it might be, and you know, this time it might be right. We can never make any kind of. I can't ever. So you, you don't think that there's an obvious identifiable progression to They're, totalitarianism and atrocities that you yeah. can identify from 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 uh, uh, from state to state to state. There's not, you know, you can't you can't sort of um, there, there, there isn't a single slip s slippery. Even if that slope is not particularly slippery, there's not <laughs> a single path that you can clearly identify and say, oh look, this state is entering into this oh. path. I think there, there's many like you know you can say like the political the political scientists of which I'm I'm not one. Um, Respect them, but I'm not one of them. Um, 
uh, you know, the point that things like, you know, when the, the system starts to degrade in favor of the individual, when the system no longer works the individuality of a leader, that's when a country will move away from like, uh, you know, a kind of rule of law and order into a more totalitarian direction. Um, but not every time that happens does it go all that way. Sometimes it swings back and people say, you know what, we don't want to go down that road. And maybe sometimes the system can hold up against the pressure individual and sometimes not. And the real problem here to me is that when people talk about slippery slopes, um, they're setting up a conclusion, an actual a behavioral conclusion. So for example, in, in the example of the, the geoengineering, when they say, well, there's a slippery slope, if you start pumping things into the, into the sky, um, it might, you know, it's where people are going to stop, you know, people are going to get a third refrigerator and a fourth car, and the whole planet's going to go down in flames. Um, they want you to come to the conclusion, we must not pump those into the sky. Um, we must not put, you know, we must not change the environment in this way because we think that's it's too problematic. Well, just to um, play devil's advocate, just play devil's advocate, right? Um, what, what slopes are slippery? You know, like, it, it, there may be things that are commonly thought of as slippery, or there may be things that aren't thought of as slippery. So, I mean, the slippery slope that you might, I mean, I think this is one that I find really interesting, a really interesting theory which people talk about is the rise of incel culture. Now, you can yeah. you can draw a fairly clear line, in my view, between um, the, the rise of feminism and the rise of incel culture. And the link is very simple and logical, that you have a situation where um, women previously were unempowered in the, ma in, in the matrimonial market. When you were married, you were basically kept women you had very little power you couldn't vote in many cultures um and your, your rights as a divorcee were, were very very limited um and so there was a very strong incentive to stay married married and and and, and also there's a you know a, a shaming of kind of uh uh you know on both partners of leaving the married um uh the, the, the marital home and, the, and leaving the relationship we don't have that now and people are free to form whatever unions they want and, and the inevitable result of that is that you get um uh men who are you know in their 40s and sometimes 50s um remarrying and and, and starting second families with um with with much younger women and for everybody for, for every man who in their later life um forms such a union uh, and has a second family is inevitably another man who doesn't get to form a family at all now that 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 right the rise of incel cultures comes from incels right you know you can't have incel culture without incels right and and you know while there's always been reproductive skew that you're always going to have um you know uh, men who there's there is more variation among male reproductive success than there is amongst female reproductive success right there's you know men can't um uh, women can't have 100 children but but men certainly can right yeah. um and but 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 the but the rise of incel culture which is you know a fairly notable feature of the modern world and not just in one country it to my mind is is you know very very strongly linked to the idea of uh you know to the erosion of of marriage as a social institution and that you know in the socially conservative periods in the mid-century marriage was you know seen as being a pretty totemic institution divorce was very much frowned on in my parents generation um certainly in the more so social conservative circles in which they moved um uh, whereas now there just isn't that stigma on either living together without being married or alternatively um on on ending a marriage that isn't working out for whatever reason now that i'm not trying to advocate a return to uh you know a, a more socially conservative time and a more socially conservative culture because you know i think there are obvious disadvantages to that and marriages can be very stifling if they're no longer working but the point i'm making is that 
there is a very obvious slippery slope between those two things. Now, I'm laboring that point because I think, firstly, it's quite interesting. And secondly, because it's a good example of a slippery slope, it's almost mathematically inevitable. If you permit people to you know, freely divorce and remarry, then the people who freely divorce and remarry are going to be the people who have got a lot to gain from it. And if you're a, you know, a 38-year-old chief executive officer who quite fancies a go on his secretary, then getting rid of your wife is, is a good way of doing that. Now, I know that sounds pretty cynical and callous, and you know, perhaps for a lot of people, it genuinely is very cynical and callous, but the rise of incel culture is very clearly linked to that. To me, that's a very slippery slope. What about for you? It, I mean, would you agree that's a slippery slope? And can you think of other social examples of slippery slopes where, you know, right, unnoticed or otherwise, um, things do form, you know, a, a, a slope well, that is slippery to a degree. What 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 what, what well, slippery slopes would you like to draw people's attention to in society? So I think you're right. I mean, there's there's you know to to just on the broader level first, it's you know that there's uh, everything has this kind of cause and effect. Um, but what would make it a slippery slope um, is is that for, you know for someone to say, well, because you know the way I think about it, uh, because this action will lead to some particularly horrific consequence, because feminism is going to lead to. Uh, there being a subsect of men who feel that they are not given an opportunity they feel they ought to have in society, um, and they're being denied their rights of manhood, um, that will lead them to become, you know, angry, frustrated, and potentially violent. Um, if, if you know, there, therefore, there's something wrong with the initial action, the feminism initial action. But most people would say that's not a, you know, that's not a slippery slope because I don't accept that that outcome is bad enough to overwhelm the goodness of the initial one. That the, the initial. Well, no, hold, hold on so, a minute. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm not using that argument to say that we should, you know, erode divorce rights and force people to remain in unhappy marriages. That's a normative statement. But what I'm saying is that there's a, you know, a mathematical inevitability to the fact that if you permit people to um, to divorce more easily, then people will divorce more frequently because they can do so more easily, and there's less financial or social penalties. For so doing and the inevitable mathematical result is that you get a rise in incels because you have people who are free to form second marriages and for everybody that forms a second marriage um uh, there's somebody who doesn't get to marry at all right so the there's an inevitability of that whereas you know not every racist incident leads to a genocide right so there isn't an, in an inevitability i'm not saying that genocides don't exist or that they're good what i'm saying is you know everybody who shouts a racist insult insult on the street or they're drunk or fails to give someone a promotion because they don't like their religion or whatever that doesn't inevitably lead to a genocide you can have a background noise of prejudice in a society without sliding into mass atrocities right so what which slopes are slippery and which ones aren't you know if we're going to if we're going to talk yeah. about slippery slopes we have to understand where the concerns are valid and where they are just nonsensical right so i don't believe mass mandates you know that that it is a slippery slope towards a totalitarian state where the government controls your every move i don't i don't there's, there's credibility in that right now conceivably i'm wrong but i think that there's a, a much less strong link than the one that i highlighted earlier right yeah, I mean, and this is, I mean, guess what? That's really sort of what sort of underlying this research is the question of that slippery slopes are really in the eyes of the perceiver. So for, for uh, incels, presumably, and I haven't spoken to anyone directly, but I can imagine they would make that, the, you know, they might make the, the feminism to incel argument because to them, the outcome of incels having to exist is a sufficiently horrible outcome. That to them, that's a natural slippery slope. Well, I think, the, yeah, I mean, that, that, I think awful. there's a difference. 
well, hold on, hold on. Let, let me just sort of take a step out there because there's a difference between saying incels will exist if you do X and incel life is bad. You might get some people who, you know, quite happy being incels. They're just not that bothered about having kids. You know, they're quite happy with their job. You know, they like going and watching the football at the weekend. They're not that bothered about the fact that they haven't got a wife telling them to take the dirty shoes off when they walk in the house. It's not, you know, it's, it's not a big deal for them. Now, the idea that, you know, incel... It, you know, an incel life is a you know, terrible existence and people would never be comfortable in it and it inevitably leads to violence is, is, is a bigger leap. But, you know, just a simple mathematical um, uh, uh, step to say, well, look, if you allow women, uh, if you allow men to, to form relationships either simultaneously or sequentially with more than one woman, you have, um, you will have a rise in incel culture. I mean, that, a rise in incels. I mean, that's just a simple mathematical result. You can't, it's, it's undeniable, right? And that's why I'd say that that thing is, you know, it's a very slippery, slippery slope. Can I, what I'm asking, I don't want to carp on about that. It's just something I've, you know, I find an interesting yeah. topic. What I'm trying to do is to help, is to get you as we brought you on as Mr. Slippery Slope expert, right? <laughs> so can you give us an idea of where you think, you know, the, the slippery slopes are more ludicrous and, and, and less ludicrous so you know an example let me give you an example of one that i think is let is, is is more ludicrous and that just from earlier in conversation the idea that you know everyone that smokes a joint is going to end up um becoming a a, a wasted um heroin addict um uh with um bloodborne disorders and and no prospects for life i i think that's visible but many people do genuinely believe that the gateway drug theory is you know it's got a name and people there are a lot of people who adhere to that right um so that that to, to to my mind you've got a spectrum there between something which is nonsense and something which is a mathematical inevitability so give us your own spectrum yes i mean like uh, i would include you know some of the stuff that pop up in in the researchers questions like around immigration that if we you know if we let in you know 500 immigrants soon we're going to the the native population is going to lose its power and we're going to become a minority in our own country um uh, it's, it's possible down the line if you have you know x number of people growing and growing at certain rates it could lead to that well, that's an that's an interesting one so let's let's pick up on that right so you know if if, if you're talking about um this kind of majority minority situation um that you're going to get in the uk and the us i mean both the, U, the uk and the us are now pretty much unarguably on uh on a one-way journey towards um, minority majority um, demographics right so you know the, the the bottom of the slippery slope has been reached but you pick that up as a an example of a fallacious transition so what what what's fallacious about it what what in what way was that argument not right or not inevitable that mass immigration will lead to demographic trans, tra transition now i mean this isn't a normative argument to be clear i'm not trying to say yeah. that this demographic transition is a bad thing you could say it's a great thing because uh, you know if you look historically at um, majority white countries they've had big population uh falls falls in the birth rate the uk for example would have a really really big demographic problem if it wasn't for immigration right you know the the the, the um uh indigenous British population just does not have enough children to replace itself. And therefore, without immigration, we'd be facing a pretty damaging demographic collapse akin to what Japan has faced. So you can make a lot of arguments either way. And I'm not trying to make any arguments about immigration and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. What I'm trying to question is simply the slipperiness of your slippery slope. So 
the US and the UK have reached the bottom or are well on the way to reaching the bottom of that slippery slope. But you've picked it as an example of something of a slope which is not slippery. So why is it not slippery? What's not slippery about a slope which two countries have slid down? The question is about the, you know, uh, what the almost what, what, what the conclusion of that is. So, for example, you know, uh, people often point to um, high rates of birth in immigrant families and go, well, this is just going to swamp us. And you can say that's the, the, the irrationality there or the lack of the, the lack of the is that over what, I think one or two generations, those numbers go down. People don't, you know, uh, the cultural maintenance of having the birth rates so that people originally come in with isn't inevitable. And nor is that, um, you know, allowing in 45 Afghani refugees today means that tomorrow we necessarily have to let in 10,000 Ugandan or, or 30,000 Dutch refugees uh, when they go underwater. Um, and so the, that element of it where you're making that kind of uh, belief system that, that this one step makes the next step inevitable. And therefore we have to defend the line at this first step. These five people- but, but just, Yeah, but just circling back, just circling back, you, you've taken, I, I just want to, 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 to force you to address the bare bones logic <laughs> that I was just giving you. You've got two countries here, the US, the US and the UK, which are sort of fairly typical of advanced um, uh, Western democracies, you could draw similar um, conclusions to places like uh, France or Sweden. You know, you've got affluent, relatively well-governed countries that have proved over the years to be a magnet for immigration. People either looking to um, reach um, political and social stabilities and, and reap the benefit of that, or they're looking for a simple, uh, simple economic upgrade to their life. You know, both of those are quite reasonable justifications. You don't have to be a, a foaming mouth um, jihadi um, intent on tearing down the West to want to go and move to a, a quiet suburb where you can rear your family in peace without someone firing an RPG through your window or, 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 or you can you know go and get a job which leads you to get you know the comforts of consumer lifestyle that you know that you don't you don't have to have, have a narrative of, of, of evil to um, to explain that level of immigration the point the point I'm trying to draw you on is that you've got these two countries which are inevitably going to become majority minority countries or minority majority whichever way around you say it basically in the 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 not the native born population because the native born population in america are american uh, first peoples but the in the uk you, you've had a, a population that's been you know fairly stable for the order of around a thousand years and that's been replaced within the space of two or three generations by an, an incoming population now the slippery slope that I think you're drawing attention to in that argument is the idea that you know that, that, that the UK is going to go to hell in a handcart because it's got loads of people from the you know former residents of developing countries and their descendants in it, and that is a um, that is a slippery slope belief that I think can easily be portrayed to be fallacious. You know, if you go to the doctor and he happens to be Asian and you're bus drivers, Afro-Caribbean, it doesn't mean society's collapsed. It just means it's got different people in it, right? So that element of the slippery slope is, in my view, at least contestable, if not outright ludicrous. But from a simple demographic point of view, the slippery slope does appear to be very slippery indeed. Well, Are I, you contesting that or not? So the, the research I did was in the Netherlands and Germany. Um, and in these countries, the, the demographics are very different. In terms of the percentage, so I think the the Netherlands is like five percent non-white or something, or slightly higher maybe, but it's 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 not looking like the U.S. or the U.K. do look. But yeah, yeah, from in the U.S. and U.K., like you pointed out, uh, if, if the argument was a slippery slope of simple demographics that 
given enough time, uh, we're going to have majority minority countries. And you said that 10 years ago, you said that today would be um, predicting the rain from underneath an umbrella. But, um, uh, you know, th those, it's obvious that it can get, th get there. So in the US and UK, I think, like you said, the argument is much more along the lines of that. Um, this will be the disintegration of the culture or the, the end of okay. what, so the country, what it is. Um, it's possible. Well, okay, well, fine. Look, I, 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 I get your argument. I get your argument. But let, let me, let me um, sort of try and take again a, a sort of somewhat devil's advocate position on this. So I, I've written about this um, yeah. for some of the journalistic work I've done previously. So I'm, I'm familiar with exploring this kind of argument. So let, let, let me give you an example. So there was a, a, a a guy uh, called, I think, Lutfer Rahman in Tower, Tower Hamlets, who was a corrupt politician. You know, he, he brought a kind of uh, a corrupt, um, tribalistic form of politician uh, politics from uh, very common in Bangladesh, where he held from. So he he became, I think, the mayor of Tower Hamlets or the head of the council. Immediately employed um, or, or appointed a, an entirely Bangladeshi. I think it was all male, all Bangladeshi. Um, uh, cabinet, you know, just nakedly corrupt. And eventually, his administration got shut down by the government. Now, um, and and they just directly managed Tower Hamlets from central government. Now, if I was a sort of you know uh, a firebrand, tiki torch carrying right winger, which I'm not, I'm quite you know, I can say I'm quite a centrist in my political beliefs. I've voted for all major political parties. Now, I um, it, you could take the view. That, that kind of transition is it is an inevitable threat from from you know uh, uh, cultures don't disappear at the port right when people step off the plane or they step off the ship that they come to your country and they don't just leave all of their cultural baggage behind and people might say well that kind of um not only was uh, the 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 immigrant background of that particular individual an inevitable feature of the um uh, of the corrupt takeover of that council but it was an in, an inevitable result of immigration per se now i think that's a big leap to say that you can't um have a stable um culture despite many years of mass immigration i think america is perhaps testament to it but um because america's got a distinct culture despite being made up of people who've you know fled or or um, migrated for economic reasons from a, a variety of countries um, uh, throughout history. And it, an American society hasn't as yet collapsed into anarchy. And so I think that slippery slope argument is, is, is pretty weak. But it, it's, it's certainly an argument that can be made that, that, that when cultures that make countries successful become replaced by other cultures, then they're that the, the success of that country is vulnerable. Do you, do you not think that, do you not have sympathy for the idea that a lot of the things that are, might be derided as being non-slippery slopes, so just slopes that people are currently sliding down but have not yet got to the bottom of? Is, is it perhaps too um, uh, a bit pompous and condemnatory of us to not take concerns seriously in that regard? I th like you have a good point, right? I think there's there's always, I mean, underlying all this is, is the question of where do slippery slopes fall in terms of normal cause and effect and risk, and how is it a distinct? Why are we just, why don't we just talk about this as cause and effect? Um, and and risks will obviously increase with every you know every step we take. So for example, if we um, decide if we put you know um, uh, when we include women in the active military, the front lines of military, additional risks come up, additional things up, approach that we may have to deal with. Um, doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Just means that there's risks that come with immigration. You have a, it's more difficult when you have, when you're integrating different people into society. You're 
trying to combine different cultural beliefs and practices and values in a way that respects all of them, but also respects the law of the nation. It's not an easy thing. And with each decision you make, there's a chance that something's going to go wrong along the way, that one step's going along, along the way. When we have uh, more liberal uh, criminal justice laws and we make it, you know, we say we would prefer, you know, a uh, hundred innocent, hundred guilty people go free than one innocent person person go to jail. We're accepting a high level of risk to to live by that kind of value, and so that's definitely that's definitely present. Um, what I think distinguishes slippery slopes is often the the intensity of the outcome. So you know, um, someone might say that that you know that a corrupt government, local government in Tower Hamlets, is insufficiently drastic to really fit into the kind of slippery slope perspective of where it's much more grand the kind of risk well, let me let me let me come up with a cultural challenge to the point that you're making here now i again i don't really hold this view but i but i think it's worth exploring anyway some might say that that you and others of your ilk are sitting there cosseted in your relatively well paid and quite secure academic not necessarily job but lifestyle you know you're you're one of society's winners you know you don't work on a building site on a day rate basis um, with the risk that someone's going to drop some badly laid cement blocks um, on your head from a crane that hasn't been properly expected. You just don't live in that precarious kind of lifestyle. You're shielded from the consequences of the slippery slopes that you're lecturing on. And what you're talking about here is a, um, uh, is a uh, almost like a kind of um, costly signaling uh, thing that you are showing your uh, immune immunity to these social consequences by holding these what might be called as luxury beliefs. You know, you get to hold these luxury beliefs um, and uh, about the the, the non-slippery nature of, of slippery slopes uh, and and the, uh, the 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 belief that these consequences aren't inevitable or aren't damaging um, because of your relatively cosseted status in society and without wittingly or otherwise you are um uh signaling your presence as a member of an elite by the views that you hold and the what you might call the man on the clapham omnibus the person who is part of a more precarious culture more precarious existence doesn't have the luxury of saying that these slopes aren't slippery because he sees they're slippery he sees the immigrants taking over his job. He sees the you know, demographic transition around him. He sees, you know, whatever other slippery stuff. So when you talk a lot about immigration here, because it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, a hot button issue that allows us to describe these issues more broadly in a way that people can relate to, not because it's necessarily the only or the more, most important slippery slope. But, but the, the, the point that I'm making is, is this, is this, um, uh, is your approach to slippery slopes a form of denialism? That a form of you showing as a member of the elites that you don't really suffer the consequences of what's at the bottom of the slide, because I, I think it's at least possible that's the case. And it's not personal to you. It, it could be a number of people in a number of other positions who um, who are immune to these kind of uh, um, uh, what's at the bottom of the slippery slope. And and uh, as a result, their, their views are sometimes seen as being dislocated from the concerns of the ordinary man. This is precisely the kind of Rust Belt um, logic that we, we were discussing earlier. No, so, so absolutely, and this is one of the key problems here, is the key problem is that the slippery slope is a personally determined thing, that it depends on uh, how good or bad you believe the initial action is, 
how beneficial or, or, or dangerous it is and how beneficial or dangerous the outcome might be. Um, and, and that'll depend on your perspective, how it affects you, uh, your perspective of, of how the world ought to be. Um, and so if I give you an example of something I think is slippery slope, and you'd be like, that's not a slippery slope at all. That's a, something I would really like to happen and, and something that ought to have happened already. And but a slippery slope can be good. Right? The, point, the, the point I'm making, the point I'm making here is that uh, so often what, what, where, are this, where we've disagreed on something, I've said something, well, I think this slope is slippery. And you said, and your, your basic argument comes down to, well, it's not slippery because what's at the bottom of the slope isn't that bad. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to comment on whether these things are bad or good because I don't think that it matters for the slipperiness of the slope. You know, to, to, to circle back and put it in geoengineering terms, you know, I don't, I don't think that, you know, a world that's got manageable temperatures and has got geoengineering is, is inherently awful compared to one that, that is, has got natural temperatures, right? You know, I think this, this, geoengineering is a pretty good way of managing um, uh, uh, climate change. So I don't, I don't, I don't fear, I don't fear geoengineering. Other people do fear geoengineering, but that's separate from whether the slope is slippery or not, right? So I'm, I, what I'm trying to, to, to draw you on is you, 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 you've identified this sort of psychological features of people who, um, uh, who, who hold these slippery slopes beliefs and, and basically saying that they tend to have a stronger sort of in-group bias. Uh, they're more, you know, perhaps more critical people. They're more prone to, um, you know, to calling out, right? And, and, and I'm not denying that those, are the, that those things are true, but what I'm trying to draw you on is the, the, the you know, the objective slipperiness of slippery slopes. You know, I, I think it's easy to sort of parody these people and say, oh, you know, they're, they're assholes or they're, they're, I mean, uh, as we do for comedy value, I'm not, I'm not shy of calling myself out as much as anybody else. The, the point I'm making is that there are some beliefs that are slippery slope beliefs that are objectively correct, you know, that certain things do happen. There are facts on the ground and there are things that lead to those facts occurring. So what, what, what are things, what, what slopes are slippery and particularly when it comes to geoengineering, how, how would we know whether these slopes genuinely are slippery or genuinely aren't slippery? So in, in a way, that's not something that my research really addresses. So um, okay. if, if you look at the way I've measured, I've looked at the research, it's asked this question more of, um, uh, are people tend to believe in it, but from a negative perspective, if you look at the philosophy and the legal side, which is where a lot of the slippery slope ideas originate from, they really tend to talk about it in this particularly negative sense that a, a series of actions will inevitably occur that will lead to some really awful outcome. Because this is the way it's yeah. presented in legal doctrine. This is the way it's presented in, in political discussions. That people will say, um, you know, uh, we cannot accept this EU regulation because next thing we know, they're going to tell us that our bananas have to be straight or bent uh, and, yeah. how much, okay. and we cannot accept that. And so that's really sort of how people discuss it and, and how we tend to look at it. Um, and, and within that, we, you know, it's, it'll be up to the individual of what they think um, is sufficiently a dangerous outcome or a, you know, uh, where the line of where the problem yeah, is. But I, I think you're, uh, you're being quite reasonable in saying, well, you know, I, I, I'm researching the psychology of slippery slope. Just, I don't know whether we actually said this at the beginning. Did you give us the title of your paper? Because it is important uh, people know what the paper is. Uh, yes, yeah, so the it's it's slip, a slippery slope to uh, a slippery slope to intolerance. Individual difference in slippery slope beliefs predict outgroup negativity. Essentially, that people who uh, at least score higher on the scale we designed of slippery slope beliefs, which we think has at least some validity, you know, based on comparing it to real world examples, 
predicts people's negativity towards outgroup practices and saying, well, we can work, we're not going to let this outgroup do these things or these things. Um, presumably in the logic is that the, the fear that we, we're afraid if we give too many rights to outgroups, their rights will overpower ours and we'll lose power. So, I mean, that's a, that's a way of framing outgroups, but there are other reasons. So people might just be very, um, uh, just lack the ability to put themselves in another person's shoes, right? So for example, if you if you either never speak to an Afghan Uber driver or you um, uh, or you don't have a you know good understanding of what they might be thinking or feeling, then you're not going to have a good understanding of their viewpoint. Um, and it, 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 it is, is it ignorance or lack of empathy that makes people see others as being in an outgroup or, or or is it something else? I mean, how, how, how does this kind of them and us thinking arise i mean I, I don't i don't tend to experience that very much i don't think because i think i don't have a very strong bond to the town i've been brought up in i don't have a very strong bond to um uh you know to, to my I, i'm not a very nationalistic person you know i don't feel particularly um an affinity to any kind of in group really and therefore to me i don't have a very strong sense of out group either but I know a lot of people do, you know, they follow the local football team. They've lived in the same area for their whole life and they've got a very strong view about who's them and who's us. I, I don't really get that. And I think this is, this is quite interesting actually, because there's, there's some other people who've done some work on this. You've got the people, the, the comparison between the somewheres and the nowheres, right? So the somewheres are people who've been born in a place, they've lived in that place. They feel a strong sense of place, a sense of affinity to place. And then you've got the nowheres, who are these kind of rootless, what you might call, they're, they're crudely derived, derided as globalists, although that can be used as a, an anti-Semitic uh, dog whistle term. But people who have not rooted in a particular area, they tend to be people who've gone away to university, uh, they move with the job. And, and these are the people, the nowheres, who, who don't have that cultural affinity. But those people who are the nowheres, they might still have a very strong affinity to groups of, you know, voters, or they might be uh, have a strong affinity to um, uh, to people of a certain professional status. So, what what determines who the out who the other is, who the out group is, and what determines the level of strength of feeling that you have for this out group um, uh, versus the in group? That is a, a phenomenal question um, and one that. Uh... Um, I'm probably not going to fully resolve, but at least in, you know, in, in, in social psychology, which is the field I'm emerging from, uh, one, of the, the dumb ways, one of the main ways talking about this is that um, we seek to validate our, our self-esteem, both from ourselves and groups we belong to. So we feel good about ourselves as an extension of the groups that we are part of. And when our football team does well, we feel good because we feel part of that football team and it, it makes our lives feel better and, and make more sense. And then at some point, groups get so large that it's hard for us to feel very, you know, we're balancing a combination of our desire to be distinctive um, and then compare ourselves to others positively. Um, against am, I, am I just being naive by thinking that I'm not, like I don't have a very strong sense of in-group and out-group? I mean, I can pick, to a lot, pick a lot of reasons and examples of why I don't feel like I've got a strong sense of in-group or out-group. It's not just geographical. There are other examples as well. So, for example, it, you know, if, if my group of mates went to have a fight with another group of mates, I would normally be the person on the outside who was chatting to the non-participants rather than brawling on the floor <laughs> with my friends, right? And, and, and that kind of behavior is quite sort of endemic throughout my life. But am I just- Lack of loyalty. 
Well, I mean, you could call it a Lamborghini, <laughs> no. or you could call it, you know, a, 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 an unwillingness to go and have pointless yeah. fights on the floor of a petrol station at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I, I, I would not now, portray it more positively. Now who's being the, now who's being the urban elite? Um, the point I'm making, the point I'm making is, yeah. am I am I simply deluded that I don't have a strong sense of in-group or out-group? By you know, you know a lot about you know this in-group out-group feeling because it's a, a core of your research. So does everyone who, who thinks that they don't have a strong sense of in-group versus out-group are they just self-deluding idiots? And is everyone prone to these in-group and out-group prejudices, or, or, or are some people just you know genuinely less in-group and out-group focused than others? How does it work? Uh, I would say there are definitely people who are more or less out-group focused than others, um, and it, it could be you know. The reasons why I haven't personally delved into, and I don't know if there's research on there that, that really answers that question specifically, but um, it could be the extent to which you feel your life is empowered on a personal level sufficiently that you don't really need um, any group belonging to sort of address any needs or to give you a sense of placement. It could be that. But is that, is that all it is? I mean, is it only people who are losing status and losing identity that, that have these you know, that are affected by these, these no. out-group versus in-group beliefs? Or, I mean, no, is, because that, is it just that they come to the fore in those circumstances? It, the, that, the idea of belonging to a group is, is uh, it's long-standing in, in, you know, we're a social animal, like uh, we yeah. from social animal species. So that, that social belonging element is pretty core, I think, to most people. So I would say to the opposite, most people, I think, have a sense of belonging groups they belong to. Um, some people, maybe it's a lot clearer, it's a lot more uh, linked to where they live um, and things like that. And others of us, it comes more down to our, our ideologies. Okay. Our well, if that's the case, if that's the case that we all, to at least a greater or lesser extent, have this, this view, then to what extent is your research sort of just focusing or teasing out what you might call a certain ugliness in this? Because, you know, the, 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 as you rightly point, point out, there's, you could describe it as loyalty, but you could also describe it as prejudice. They're kind of two sides of the same coin, right? So if I'm loyal to my town's football team, there's an inherent, you know, the flip side of that is that I'm perhaps, you know, less keen. On Liverpool. To, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm football kind of trivialises it to an extent, but the point is, you know, if I'm, if I'm very, if I'm someone who's very, let's talk about it in terms of my town, because it's kind of easier. If I'm very focused on reducing poverty in my town, then I might be, relatively speaking, somewhat more indifferent to people who are poor in another town, right? Potentially. Um, you know, maybe you, you feel your town is particularly great would be the kind of, you know, the kind of example, like, you know, you, you think your town is pretty amazing. And when people talk about the next town over, you're like, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah but, but, but people people might think their town's great and they might win the, you know, Britain in Bloom Award or Best Kept City or whatever. <laughs> that's that's all fine. But the point I'm making is that people don't, you know, that, that doesn't leverage your charity. The poor in one town are not inherently less deserving than... Than, than those in another town. Now, if I come from Manchester and I think Manchester's the best thing on earth and I spend my time devoting myself to the poor and needy of Manchester, then I'm kind of inevitably ignoring the poor and needy in Liverpool, right? That, that's the, sort of the, the flip side of it, right? So that, that, that loyalty comes, you know, it comes across as, uh, as some extent, say, um, a prejudice or an indifference against you know, the outgroup you identify from your research, right? Or, or there is an extent to which that comes across as just, uh, you know, a, 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 as a, a, a bi an, an unjustified bias and concern at the, very, at the most benign. You know, you don't have to go and smash someone over the head with a mace for being in the wrong town uh, or from the wrong town um, for that prejudice to be, 
you know, a real thing. It could just be that you don't bother to give them any food when they're hungry, right? I mean, at, at the threshold, it comes down to discriminatory in its least problematic sense. There's just differential treatment. And so you're treating yeah. the poor of Manchester differently than you're treating the poor of, of Liverpool or London or, or Aberdeen or I don't know, other places. Um, uh, and, and it maybe makes sense, right? Because, you know, charity begins at home, serves a certain purpose. Um, we're more, you know, we, we, we want to give more to people we see directly. Um, uh, we know a whole bunch of different ways in which, you know, if, you see, if I tell you that a thousand people are starving, you might just shrug. And if I tell you one person starving, I give you $10 because... $10 can help one poor person, but your $10 isn't going to change 10,000 people's lives. It feels almost useless as an action and you feel less motivated to do it. Um, so these, from, from these kind of like these, these belonging in this town, you're going to generate kind of different, you know, uh, different answers to think your town is good and the people in your town matter more to you. Uh, is it prejudicial? Um, are you making judgments about them? Possibly yes or no. Uh, but in many other cases, obviously, we are making judgments about like the, you know, whether people's are living the right way or or they're they're yeah i mean that, that you, you can be assistance. more openly prejudicial you know you, you i think you know democrats are like this or i think black people are like that and yeah. you know those stereotypes might be true to an extent but you know they, they can easily veer into you know outright prejudice where you know people you might say for example well i don't know um uh asians are more commonly taxi drivers that's a, that's a fact right you know you're more more likely to meet an asian person who's a taxi driver than than in other professions, or you pick pharmacy or, or, or any other profession that attracts Asian people in greater numbers. But to say the leap from there to say, well, Asians are only good for taxi driving is a, is a much yeah. bigger leap, right? And that, that's where it becomes prejudicial. What I'm trying to understand is in terms of this outgroup bias, you know, you, you say that there are some people who are more outgroup biased and or more aware of in groups and outgroups. That's almost a subject of research. So I'm not surprised that you held that view, but you're also saying. You're also kind of agreeing with me as far as I can tell that there isn't necessarily it's not necessarily an ugly thing you know you can be a very community-minded community focused person you know you go and do volunteering in your community your charity community but you're still expressing in-group bias because although you're altruistic that, alt that altruism is essentially orthogonal to this in-group and out-group thing you don't have to be you know a, 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 a essentially a nasty person to have this kind of in-group, out-group bias. You can just be, you know, you can express it through loyalty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? yeah, In-group, out-group makes it, for, the most, for most, many people in the world who live in, in uh, more communal societies, in-group, out-group, it makes sense. You've got your family you live with and, and they deserve most of your attention and most of your energy. You've got your community you live in. They deserve more yeah. than ones that are other. You've got your tribe or group. And, and that's a, a very natural kind of thing, I think, for people in general. And this is why people say we should make sure we distinguish between in-group love and out-group hate. That they're, they're we, we like to think they're two sides well, of the same coin, but they're not necessarily. We do, uh, well, yeah. That, I just like to challenge that because, you know, I'm what I've described is a is an orthogonal matrix basically. So you're you're, you're in group. You know, you're basically saying I love I I love my family, but it doesn't mean I hate yours, right? Yeah. Then which is where you're sort of drawing this distinction in in group love and out group hate. But what I'm trying to understand is, you know, I. Is that actually orthogonal? That some some people are just prone to indifference and hatred, and they and if they are prone to very strong outgroup bias, then they express that proneness to hatred by going and um, doing a cattle raid on the neighbouring town, right? Um, and people who are very prone to you know love and altruism might, if they were 
in-group bias might express that by feeding the poor and needy but only of their town right so my my, my argument is that or it, it is that these things are basically orthogonal to one another this the, the degree to which you're altruistic or you know uh, friendly and compassionate is pretty much unrelated to the degree to which you're that you're outgroup biased and yeah. the, the reason we see you know racism and prejudice as being negative is where you get the, the kind of coalition coalescence of these two factors so you get somebody who is fundamentally quite a you know not a pleasant or altruistic person you know we don't criticize people for feeding the poor even if they only feed some of the poor right the the, the issue comes when that when you're an aggressive malevolent person and then you're also prejudiced as well so that instead of just going around being fairly rude to everybody you single out a particular group to be unpleasant too that's where it becomes a lot more problematic because you know those are the people who advocate for genocide right or people would also be upset like let's say you opened a, a center to feed people and before people were able to come inside they had to prove they lived in manchester to get access people would i think that would begin to criticize the amount of energy you're putting into excluding others now seems like it's intentional rather than you just opening a, you know a, a, a food or a shelter center in manchester itself um but yeah i think i think you're right in the sense that they are, are orthogonal um, and you know, it's it's you know, and this is why one of the main things that when people talk about ways to to reduce this kind of prejudice that arises from this kind of group differentiation is contact, positive contact. The more you actually meet with the people of the other group, you you rehumanize them and you recognize, oh right, these are people. They're not just an abstract concept on which I put broad generalizations, many of which are negative because I feel better when I'm comparing myself positively to them. Uh, you know that. They're, they're real people who are French rather than they're the French. Um, and, and that's, I think, one of the why, you know, so these differences arise because we naturally often form groups and those who are part of the other group, we don't really know much about them, we don't interact with them, and we end up just in broad generalizing uh, beliefs about what kind of people they tend to be. And then when we engage with them in positive ways, we remind ourselves, all oh, right, these are people like I'm people, they have flaws the way I have flaws, and they have strengths the way I have strengths. And that can help try to reduce the kind of prejudice that can often arise uh, from these interactions, from, from you know these prejudices that are that these things that we bring up for the other groups and out groups. You got the idea that these two um, uh, dimensions of uh, what personality and character are, are somewhat orthogonal, right? Um, but what what does that tell us um, about the? Um, is it that the? Let, let me just clarify something you said earlier so you, you you you've previously mentioned that the people who were prone to this slippery slope thinking are catastrophists in their slippery slope thinking so is it the case that what you're saying is more about the consequences of the slippery slope being differential or the belief in the slippery slope full stop being differential so is it is it the case that people who have this strong outgroup bias are more likely to say things like um uh, you know, immigration will lead to demographic transition and that will be bad? Or are they more likely to just say immigration will lead to demographic transition, um, which is, you know, a, a neutral statement, but it's, it, it doesn't have the same kind of emotional smack that the other one had? I mean, I, I don't know if I could speak directly to that. I, I think I would say, you know, that uh, people who, who don't trust an outgroup um, uh, or have not, you know, who carry prejudices and about them, which can happen to all of us, right? It happens across political, racial, ethnic, national spectrums. Um, 
we're more likely to see the dominance or power of another group as, as a problem. We're likely to well, see- let, let, me, let me explain why I'm asking the question. And the, uh, the reason I'm picking up on immigration on a number of occasions um, is because it's easier to, to identify the outgroup when you're talking about immigration than it is when you're talking about geoengineering. Now, the, the slippery slope, the, the question about slippery slope is really, really important to geoengineering because it's an often cited argument um, to avoid geoengineering research. And that's the, why, brought you and I want to talk to you about it. But the, but the key thing that I'm trying to understand is the basis for your um, slippery slope thinking uh, appears to be um, a bit different. So let, let, me, let, me, let me sort of parody your point to, um, to a point to make it um, a bit more clear where, I'm, where I spot the potential weakness in it. It, it, it's not, I, I suspect that what you're identifying here is not that people are more prone to slippery slope thinking, but they're more prone to being, um, they're more prone to, you know, prejudicial outgroup beliefs and therefore more prone to catastrophize the slippery slopes that they, that they see. Now, what I'm, I think that you're, you're drawing a distinction here where you're, you're basically saying slippery slope thinking is about identifying the bad things that happen, not just identifying a trend, but identifying negative consequences of that trend. And so what I'm really trying to, to, to pin you down on here is to get you to clarify whether the differences that you've found are truly differences in just pure slippery slope thinking, or they are genuine differences only in people's um, normative beliefs about that transition. Is it a difference in the slipperiness of the slope or where you slide to that you've identified? Because I suspect it's the latter. It's the way we've, the way we've measured it is, is more just uh, the, the, I guess, the slipperiness of the slope, I suppose, would be in the sense of that people, are people likely to, to agree with statements along the lines that, you know, taking uh, small actions or non-problematic actions now will lead to drastic catastrophic consequences. Um, okay, but let, 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 sorry, let me, let me just come back and challenge that. So how have you asked that question? Because my suspicion is that you've asked it in a way where the, the slippery slope is not one which is, you're not, you're, if you're asking people about things that are traditionally controversial subjects, you know, like we you know, mentioned a few times in this podcast about Im the immigration debate being a very, a very obviously div socially divisive issue, then you're going to be picking on subjects um, that, that are inherently socially polarizing to what extent have you managed to um to tease out the differences in the actual beliefs and and, and uh, of the of likelihood versus differences in beliefs of consequences do you see what i mean yes yeah, so does your research does your research carelessly conflate two inherently rather different things or have you taken great care to avoid um I, I, let me get let me give an example from other research because i you know i, I, I know i'm labeling the point but it's really 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 important to understand what you found here often what you'll find is a piece of research which is done by a liberal saying oh look we've tested this fallacious belief and we found that conservatives hold it and therefore conservatives are idiots now that's obviously a bit of a parody, but I can pick a fair few papers where that kind of stuff's been done. What they don't do is, you know, go and do the equivalent and say, well, here's a 
bunch of stupid stuff that liberals believe and we found a bunch of liberals that believe stupid things right so my my concern in this research is that you picked um uh, a type of belief not necessarily politically polarized but a type of belief system that that identifies your your um group of you know positive respondents to your survey the people who have this slippery slope catastrophist thinking and i'm i'm concerned that what you're picking out is not a belief in a mathematical probability but built belief in a in a, an, an erosion of normative of normative ideals basically um, is, that, is that a valid fear about your research so i mean going into we had what well, you know so to, to first on the, the side of the um the example so the questionnaire we used for slippery slope thinking was uh specifically left vague which brings its own weaknesses because um, it's not a direct question about in this instance, do you think this might happen? Or it's more, do you generally think that bad things might happen from you know, small actions will lead to bad consequences? And when you get that vague, you sort of get a little bit far away from where you're trying to reach. Okay. But so you're not picking specific examples or. We try to avoid that, but there's weaknesses with okay, that. Too. Right. Because when we're so vague, all of a sudden these things become a little bit more abstract. And when things get abstract, the relevance to the, to the, to the, to the, the concrete examples becomes a little more messier. In one of our studies, for example, two of our studies, we then tried to match this belief system, the way we measured it, onto real-world examples, asking people a series of you know, questions we thought were more right-wing, like this immigration one, or about whether or not you know, following EU rules would lead to the, the, the loss of a national identity. Um, on the left-wing, we went with arguments about that like cutting any social security would be the end of the welfare state or the end of the, the security state and just uh, turns like a you know, rampant inhumanitarianism. Um, and we used some more ones we thought were maybe more centrist about things like allowing the government to do any kind of, you know, um, uh, hacking, you know, tapping phone calls or any kind of um, certain investigations would lead to the end of privacy and freedom. Uh, and we find that, you know, this slippery slope beliefs predicts across the board. Um, it tends to predict more belief in, in the, the right wing leaning ones. Uh, we also thought right wing, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, correlated across all of our studies with right wing thinking. And, but that might totally be a matter of how we worded it. And that's always, I think, a risk here is okay. because it's an abstract thing. Because You're saying that you can't, you can't tease out a, a, you know, a clear left versus right um, thinking. I mean, one of the other things that's, that's yeah. worth mentioning is when you talk about left versus right, there is a very prominent age and gender co-confounder co and also an ethnic one as well, that you know, the uh, older, whiter and more male cohorts are more likely to vote for right-wing and particularly nationalist right-wing parties right so you it's, it's difficult to to, to deconflate those aspects but but what you're saying is that you you, you found this effect to be slightly stronger amongst right-wingers is that right yeah i mean and, and we know we included age and gender they don't really do very much in our samples and of course you know things will differ a lot by country so the netherlands is a very different country even in germany next door but did this, did this, did this effect so hold up when you when you corrected for yeah. Um, age and gender. This is, yeah, these effects all hold up controlling for age, gender, um, and, and, and okay. you know, in the number of studies, including things like conservatism, political orientation, national identification, education, just to make sure that these effects are not just, uh, you know, only existing. And so what was it, what was underlying the belief? Was it, was the, was, was the only robust correlate whether people held right-wing beliefs? Is that the only thing that you could find that was robustly predicted? Uh, right-wing beliefs pretty consistently, um, uh, had these kind of effects, you know, slippery slope, right? Yeah, slippery slope beliefs that had, you know, 
pretty you know consistently predicted it. We also found well, that's really interesting because certainly within within the field of geoengineering, that that slippery slope thinking is much more prominent on the hard left, um, which makes me think that maybe it's an issue driven thing. But you're saying that you've deliberately done it, so it's not issue driven. So well, the, I mean, the people who... we tried to measure not be, but we, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that you know I've no surveys definitive. I've made... Like I get uh, yeah. it, you know, <laughs> somebody else can come along and do this research and get a different result. But what let let we we take it in good faith that you actually have actually discovered something rather than just pooing everybody that comes on and say oh there's only one study because there's obviously but... not a lot of point in doing the podcast. So we're going to just say that everyone's paper is rubbish because it's only one study, right? <laughs> Even but though we might include that. that, that I associate this slippery slope thinking very clearly within this discipline as being a feature of the kind of hard left, the anti-capitalist thinking, what you might call the anti-imperialist thinking, although there's aspects of imperialism in that thought process as, as recent scholars. Um, I think there's a guy called Ole Tawayo or something like that. I can't remember the, his name, unfortunately, but he did a paper basically saying this kind of an, anti-geoengineering thought is, is, is imperialist and colonial. Um, but that the, the traditionally anti-imperialist or describe themselves as anti-imperialist and anti-colonial elements of the left uh, tend to be the more slippery slope type people. But you're saying that that, as far as your research has identified, the the slippery slopeness of this is actually something which is a more consistent feature of the right. To to what extent can can you give us an idea of the quantification of that? You know how how um, in terms of if we if we count the effect, um, to what extent is that the case? So uh, I would say something like the you know maybe you know these effects you know for all these effects are uh, you know especially overwhelming maybe one to one and a half times uh, more strongly on the right than on the left. Um, okay. It's like is this, as, this, as this predicts things. But to me, what I would come away with as the conclusion is that, you know, given, like you said, it's, it's very issue driven. We focus on social tolerance in two countries that are led, depending on, you know, you could speak to people on the left who will tell you that the governments are centrist right. Um, but the, the, there's more right wing parties, in, at least in the Netherlands and Germany, who are excluded from the governing parties than there are left wing parties. So the right wingers tend to feel they're the ones who are excluded and out of power. Um, and so it's unsurprising that a lot of these social dimensions, they're going to feel, you know, they, they might slide into the slippery slope thinking the same way that, you know, Okay, like, did you notice, that, did you, was this an international study? Did you do this, was it, did it vary by country? And did you notice so, a difference in the, the right versus left yeah. difference according to which country you were analyzing? So we focused on the Netherlands predominantly, but also included some studies with Germany uh, as well, because this, was a, this came from a European Union grant. So they wanted the studies to be conducted. Well, that's really interesting because what you're saying there is that, you know, quite rightly, that the, the sort of more um, uh, kind of centrist and, and particularly center left is quite dominant in those countries. Certainly the kind of nationalistic right, which you see to some extent, it's quite a significant feature of Eastern, in Eastern Germany, but it isn't um, in government very significant feature in France and, and the dominant political cohort in the UK. I mean, the UK has, has basically adopted a, uh, a, a socially um, uh, and economically rather left-wing government in, in many ways. Um, uh, and uh, as one of our previous guests has pointed out, along with a you know very nationalistic right-wing, um, uh, you could even uh, perhaps in a rather inflammatory fashion, call it something akin to national socialism, which would be um, perhaps <laughs> a step too far to many, for many people, but I, I can certainly see some very worrying parallels um, in the UK at the moment. But 
I, I think in terms of broader political spectrum, um, you, the, the, the idea that these right wingers in the countries that you studied are the kind of the left behinds and the left outs um, would suggest that that would at least give an explanation. If you if you if you if you were in a society where the right was dominant, like Brazil, for example, would you you know in the, the nationalistic right was dominant? Would you would you expect to find the same results, or do you think that these would vary according to which political faction was in the ascendant? I think some to some degree, I would like to say I, I would like to believe that it, it depends a lot on who's in power as these beliefs go. But I think you know the way okay. you word it. I wouldn't, so if I ran this study in Brazil now, I wouldn't be surprised to find pretty much the same effects just because um, at least socially speaking, there seemed like in terms of social, uh, social fears, there seemed to be more fears coming at least that I can notice on the, the, the right rather than the left in many countries. Um, but in others, you know, it depends. Like the, you know, the, the United States, you know, there's a lot of anti or, or fears of fascism emerging during the, the Trump era. Um, yeah, those certainly. Are very much slippery slope beliefs. Uh, that that seemed to be reaching very catastrophic outcomes that seemed really, really unlikely, given this one action. Uh, like, you know, yeah. bringing one judge into office is not the end of the government and like the collapse of Rome, the, the barbarians are not at the gates. Um, but, you know, I think people people do go that way. Um, yeah, I think, it, you know, uh, I... I yeah. so, so just to, just to sort of reiterate what you just said is that you think that the difference between, the, you know, the tendency for right-wingers to espouse these more catastrophist, um, uh, slippery slope beliefs is is a function of their right leaning political mindset and not a response to their immediate political powerlessness. It's something which is um, a, a you know a, a more fundamental thing than just whether mm. their team is in government, right? No, I would say it's a combination of the, of the question of whose who's team's in government and who feels like they're pretty secure in their current state uh, or insecure in the current state. Um, but also a topical, an issue-based thing. That is, uh, there are some issues that just um, are much more important to right-wingers than to left-wingers. And on these kind of issues, the, the, the risk of catastrophe uh, is that much scarier. Um, and so it's something they're going to be more attuned toward, right? This is the whole, you know, wrestling. But, but my understanding of what you said earlier is that you've, you've picked a range of issues to try and avoid any one issue becoming dominant in terms of people's thinking about, yeah, so you're trying to, to try to separate the issues from the ten from the political tendencies is that is that the case or not? Yeah, so we use like, misunderstand that for our measure of slippery slope. We just use general questions that were not tied to any specific themes, topics, or practices. Um, within okay. our studies, we you know we tried to validate it. We asked, well, you know, we've measured something, but what is it? Um, how do we know it's really slippery slope thinking at all? And so one of the ways we tried to to strengthen that to see if it was the case was to come up with real world examples of slippery slope arguments that people find in the political sphere and just see is, is our measure a predictor of those? Because if our measure- okay. is so you, but, but, slope, but what you're saying is that it may, may be that the, the, the slippery slope thinking that you, the, 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 the examples that you picked were just more terrifying for right wingers than the, than the, than the ones that it you picked be. for left wingers, right? Yeah, and that's, okay, that's why I wouldn't make- I had a limited number of scenarios and it may be that you, it's like you showed some people are scared of spiders and some people are scared of snakes and the, and the snake picture that you picked was scarier for whatever reason than the spider <laughs> picture, right? Uh, yeah. That was, yeah, so you'd have to have more studies over more cultures to confirm this effect. But so in summary, where we've got to is that <laughs> the, um, my understanding of this is that, that, that you, there are two types of slippery slope beliefs. You can have a, a um, one which is based on a, uh, the, 
principle of universal law, what you might call a kind of numerical slippery slope, you do something once and then that would cause you or make it more likely that you do it a million times versus for geoengineering, a more socio-technical slippery slope, which is um, uh, a different type of slippery slope, but, but maybe related to it. And, and what you found is that people who are more persuaded by slippery slopes arguments, particularly in terms of the negative consequences of slippery slope arguments, but not necessarily limited to that. It may be a more, you know, more mathematical effect that people view history as being more deterministic, um, that people have a stronger outgroup bias, that, you know, an in-group versus outgroup bias. And that, that kind of belief system is more concentrated on the political right based on the studies that you've done, which is an interesting effect because it, to some extent, conflicts with the day-to-day -day experience of people in our field where the, these beliefs are more commonly expressed by people in, on the left. So what my personal experience of this field is and what I've learned about slippery slope thinking is that the people who are prone to this thinking tend to be more on the left, but you're saying that they are not necessarily um, more, that, that may be because the issue spectrum <laughs> is drawing out people of this in-group, out-group bias, people are very prone to this out-group bias, who may also be on the political left. And, it, and uh, but the reason that it's seeming like a left-wing bias is probably an issue-driven thing, as opposed to a dominance of this kind of thinking amongst people on the political left, because your research has shown that this thinking is somewhat more apparent on the political right than on the political left. Is that correct? I wouldn't make too much hay about the right versus left. I think your point was, was excellently made, right? That it's probably topically driven that um, the environment is a very moral issue on the left wing. It's not a particularly moral issue on the right. Um, uh, right wingers aren't bothered by necessarily by oil that's not dug up. Left wingers can be very bothered by oil that is. Um, yeah. And so that, I'm, I'm surprised. Can I just ask a point of clarification? You've drawn a left-right spectrum, but normally the, the political spectrum is is more in more modern research is broken down to left right but also as an orthogonal axis which is an authoritarian libertarian axis did you manage to tease out any differences along that axis or was it only limited to um uh, authoritarian um versus uh, or was it uh, was it only limited to left and right and you didn't look at authoritarian versus libertarian beliefs uh, i don't think we looked at authoritarian versus libertarian which we used in the measure of uh, conservatism um, and we tried normative conformity, uh, just, you know, to, how, how important it is. Because as essentially, you know, uh, a lot of the research uses a kind of one item measure of political orientation in a very simple way. And it seems to line up well yeah. with more complex measures of left, right. But um, those are also limited because the world doesn't split into left versus right only. Um, it also splits on like. So what you're saying is that in your research, there may have been some conflation of right wing thinking with authoritarian thinking. And it yeah, may we, be that what you've discovered is actually an authoritarian thing and further research would be necessary to tease out whether it's an authoritarian spectrum or whether it's a left-right spectrum. Is that, is that, would I be right yeah. in raising that criticism? We tried, okay. we tried a few different methods of breaking apart the left-right to get it off this one-dimensional way that it's seen, but there's a million different ways, I think, um, because it's a very complex thing that, you know, like you said, a, a, like, it, is. it defines a lot of different ways of a worldview beliefs that are, are tied in with it. So, yeah, um, well, I, I, I'm fascinated by individual differences in psychology and belief, and I'm fascinated by 
in the slippery slope concept in in general you know to what extent uh, are social transitions you know predictable and inevitable and controllable um and to what extent are they you know random and chaotic i i, I find it an absolutely fascinating subject um just want to before we wrap up um what was the publication journey like for you so what was the journal that this came out in for a start um so this journal uh it came out in the uh, journal of research in personality um i took this paper originally to a social psychology journal um but they were social not, ecology what no, social psychology sorry social oh, psychology right, okay. um i don't know what yeah. social psychology is but now i feel like i should publish something there maybe in my next paper um, I think uh, it's probably I, just a field I made up, to be honest. Well, we could become the experts. Well, uh, I suppose social ecology would be like <laughs> studying beetles and things like that. They live in groups, I, I well, guess. Let's not, let's not do that. We, the, the talk of spiders and snakes was scary enough for me. I think I'll leave the beetles. Okay, fine. Well. Um, but we know we went through, we went through to one journal first and they weren't, uh, they weren't very interested in it. Um, um, but they gave some very useful feedback and criticism to write, you know, to improve the paper, talk about slippery slope in a clearer kind of way, because like we, you know, what's come out in this conversation is slippery slope is a slippery concept um, of what counts as one, who determines uh, how slippery it is and, and how do we, you know, cut the line between the valid ones and the invalid ones and how do we decide when someone's being rationally fearful of what's to come and when someone's putting over, you know, irrational restrictions on behavior for fear of some unlikely consequence. Um, and that, that helped us a lot. Um, and then when we were able to, to write this journal, I think they were really helpful. The um, reviewer two was nice, which is, I think. Uh, reviewer two is not nice. Reviewer two, if reviewer two is nice, he's not doing his job properly. I think um, I'm a very lazy reviewer two. Oh, quite possibly. Um, the, we're, uh, Unprofessionalism is certainly a feature of review to his existence. Um, so we've managed to get through slippery slopes, Nazis, the Jews, incels, Henry Ford, um, authoritarians, uh, and many, many more aspects on this wandering, fascinating, and often completely irrelevant podcast, um, which I hope uh, our listeners have enjoyed. So I'm just going to finish by rejecting your paper because it didn't um, <laughs> adequately tease apart um, right and left versus authoritarianism. And um, uh, it didn't uh, include a sufficiently broad range of cultures um, to uh, work out whether the effect that you're describing was real. Um, and that is sufficient grounds for me to uh, feel like I've done a good job of getting rid of you with a boot print on your ass from reviewer two. And I enjoyed it very much and hope that I get the opportunity to give more of your work a kicking in due course. So do let us know when you publish anything else. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much. This has been the, the best and most painful reviewer to experience I've had. I appreciate it. Excellent. It's what we aspire to. Goodbye. <laughs>